When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I do a lot of research for this podcast. You know who doesn't care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? It doesn't do any research. Of course, it's my co-host here, always via Zoom video chat, Kristen Studdard. Hi, Kristen. Hello, Joe. You're sounding crisp again. Uh, Thank you. With that AKG microphone. Let's see. I wonder if our listeners will notice a difference from last week and this week. If you do, tweet at Joe. Yeah. Let us know if you were disappointed at Kristen's audio quality last week. So let's bring in our guest. I'm excited to have him. He's the author of a new book, Sonic Boom, that's all about the rise of Warner Brothers Records. Uh, He's coming to us from Portland, Oregon. It's Peter Ames Carlin. Hey, Peter. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's fun to be here. So you've got a new book coming out. If you could give us the, the quick elevator pitch on Sonic Boom. <laughs> How tall is the building? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. It's a book about the history of Warner Brothers Records, which was actually uh, sort of a conglomeration of two different record companies that started one in 1958 and one in 1960. The first was Warner Brothers Records, which of course was a subdivision of the Warner Brothers movie company at the time. And the second was Reprise Records, which was started by Frank Sinatra as a kind of boutique label that he wanted to have not just both for himself and also for jazz and sort of jazz pop artists who he admired quite a bit. And uh, they launched at the start of the rock and roll era, as it was, you know, Elvis and Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and, and Jerry Lee Lewis and all the others were really at the point where they were becoming absolutely dominant on the pop charts. But the leaders of both of those companies hated rock and roll and decided they were going to try to make a go of it without ever releasing rock and roll records, which proved LOL. to be, a, yes, <laughs> except they were not LOLing when their uh, <laughs> annual profit and loss statements started coming up. And, and eventually they uh, loosened their standards a little bit and a slightly younger generation of executives on the Warner Brothers side, it was a fellow named Joe Smith. And on the reprise side, it was uh, Mo Austin. They took over and developed more power as the 60s went on and began to sign rock and roll artists. And by 1967, they both got complete control over their then sort of twin sort of sibling record companies. At the time, I think the labels were called Warner Reprise, or the company was. And by 1967, they began to sign people like Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead and Captain Beefheart and Van Dyke Parks and Randy Newman and these not just rock and roll artists, but kind of very left-wingy, freaky rock and roll artists. Because what Mo and Joe, but really largely Mo, figured out was that this going assumption that young rock and roll fans were going to inevitably 
become fans of Frank Sinatra and more sophisticated pop was completely wrong because what they were going to want was more sophisticated rock and roll music. And so he, uh, he sat down with his A&R staff and literally said, we need to stop trying to make hit records. Let's just make good records and turn those into hits. And that's when they went out on this huge signing binge and brought in a lot of artists who sounded nothing like the top 40. And, you know, the other thing Mo understood was that people were going to become much more involved with collecting albums rather than just 45 RPM singles. And the artists that he signed were really part of that wave of artists who turned the album into the central sort of thrust of rock and roll music and culture, sort of the central most popular product. And within a couple, three years, this company that signed, you know, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and a bunch of just the freakiest freaks that were out there making rock and roll music became the most popular, you know, most successful label in the world. And they led the industry either as the most popular or among the one or two or three most popular, most successful labels for nearly 30 years. And that takes you through this entire sort of enormous growth period that the rock and, you know, the music industry had where having double digit uh, growth year in and year out was commonplace. And often it would be 20%, 30% or more growth from one year to the next. And it went from being a, a pretty decent industry to being an overwhelmingly popular and profitable industry. I mean, a multi-billion, billion dollar a year thing. And a lot of that was led by by Mo Austin and Warner Brothers Records. Um, right. Yeah. Mo Austin is kind of the central figure, his philosophy of respecting the artist letting the artist do what they do kind of went against the normal kind of mo of the record business it's not about the bottom line that everything will fall into place if you let the musicians make the music they want to make right and the profits the benefits of that sort of would accrue in ways you know first of all they were not put out if an artist didn't hit immediately so in other words, the money mm -hmm. that you laid out this quarter or even this year didn't necessarily need to pay off within that short time frame. Because what he understood was if you take an artist who's you know, a fairly sophisticated, interesting artist and you gave them time to grow and mature and they would not only find an audience, but they would also find a voice and a connection with an audience that wasn't just going to last for that one record or even the next record or for five years, it was gonna go on for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years and beyond. And so lo and behold, you know, they signed the Grateful Dead and lost quite a bit of money on them for the first five years. But then they began to turn a profit by 1970. And even now, you know, 55 years later, after signing them, you know, they're still raking in tons of money from the Dead's catalog, you know? And there were other sort of unexpected benefits. Like you take a band like Fleetwood Mac, who for, eight years was basically a, you know, a kind of lukewarm blues rock band that were interesting and they were good. And 
you know, the Warners people loved their records. So even though they didn't make any, any money on these records and the band was in constant tumult with people coming and going, their lead guitarists sort of lead central figures, you know, it was Peter Green and then it was Jeremy Spencer and then it was Bob, you know, people were coming in and out and coming in and out and the band seemed to be in constant chaos and their records weren't selling well, but they were good people and Mo and, and the Warners people liked their records. And so they stuck with them and eventually, you know, after yet another revolution within the band, they signed these young California kids, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. You know, the next record sold 3 million copies, which was a great return off of the previous years. And the record after that sold more than 20 million copies, which is like a nation state's annual income, <laughs> you know? And so it was like, oh, well, look at that. Or even an artist like Van Dyke Parks, who is a very sort of artist's artist type of guy, you know, brilliantly talented, a brilliant musician and songwriter and arranger, but he made these records that hardly anyone could really wrap their arms around, except for like a up and coming young artist, uh, you know, guitar player living in a crappy little town in the deep South named Peter Buck, who just happens to eventually, you know, who falls in love with Van Dyke Parks and Captain Beefheart and these, and develops an understanding as a teenager that Warner is a special label. And then when his band 20 years later, is you know on the verge of becoming incredibly popular and it's time for them to leave their indie label and go to a major record company he's all in for warner brothers because he knows having had this very early experience with them and then hearing from other artists that were on warners that you could make records for them and the anr guys and the executives weren't going to try to tell you what to do so rem signs with warners and instantly, you know, the next record sold 3 million copies. And then they had back to back to back, like 10 plus million selling records. And again, we're talking about nation state money rolling in through REM. So, you know, you have the patience to stick with a band. They could evolve into Fleetwood Mac. You have the patience to stick with a guy like Van Dyke Parks, just because you love his records, even though you know he's probably never going to make a ton of money, then you get to get REM after that. Yeah, no. it's funny. I've, I'm like Van Dyke Parks and I open up the Wikipedia page and it says genres, orchestral pop, Americana, art pop, Baroque pop and experimental pop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, he also just happens. I mean, this isn't really Van Dyke is an amazing guy. I've known him for a long time. I mean, and he's quirky and he's a little bit a little bit flinty, as they say at times. But he's also sweet and brilliant and fun. But um even before he was, you know, a rock and roll musician, he was this brilliant child falsetto in the, you know, the American boys choir who had a side career as a teenager acting on TV shows and movies like The Honeymooners, for instance. He was in a movie with Grace <laughs> Kelly. He sang Christmas carols with Albert Einstein. I mean, he's had this phenomenal past. Without so ever having to become famous, which I think can be its own horrible well, he made, you know, he was also Brian Wilson's collaborator on that, you know, legendary and, and legendarily unreleased for nearly 40 years psychedelic Beach Boys record, Smile, which developed, a, you know, this legend that was like a religion. 
and trust me because I was one of the faithful for many, many years. And then I wrote a book about Brian Wilson and about Smile and, and Van Dyke and everything and talk about people who probably should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, Van Dyke has had a, you know, a huge impact on not just the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson, but also the Birds and Buffalo Springfield. I mean, he was very into that sort of avant-garde rock and roll thing in the mid 60s and very influential in that scene. And so Mo Austin signed him up to be a solo artist and a producer and an arranger and all this stuff, just because he knew Van Dyke was brilliant and who knew what he might, you know, create for Warner Brothers. And eventually Van Dyke's presence was part of what brought REM to the company. It took 20 plus years. <laughs> yeah. It's quite a long-term investment, but paid off. Well, but it but sounds like it, that's their thing is like to do the long-term investment to not yeah. require a quick turnaround, to not be trying to make it's it is really interesting to look at that through the lens of 2020 or even like the last, like the 2000s, you know, right. it's kind of like the dawn of the internet was the death of the album in many ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've gone full circle back to more singles oriented culture, more hit making kind of immediate return. But we also have kept and maintained, I think, the idea that of connecting to your audience and of building a fan base because you look at the people who on the internet now who are connecting to their fans and sharing themselves and like making these little pockets of people who will follow them anywhere but yeah. it's just not done on such a grant it's like they don't need a record label to invest in them right. in that in that way they can just invest in a you know a looping machine in their bedroom and then upload it on soundcloud and just amass followers through all of these kind of like free direct ways right. but it's not as much about necessarily like album culture is more of a hipster pastime than a yeah at the industry. time you know at the time there were you know sort of the industry was kind of about these gatekeepers and to some extent that's still true but one of the benefits of the internet and digital music is that the gatekeepers have largely been dismissed yeah, the barrier of entry is like non-existent. Right. If you can get it out there, you know, you still right. have to connect it with the right people, but it's yeah. just so much more accessible. But the good news for, you know, back in the old days, and I say this as an older person, <laughs> you know, whose tastes were formed. I mean, I was a pretty precocious and got into music pretty early. So, you know, my taste began to form when I was like three years old listening to the Beatles records my parents had in the mid 60s. And so, you know, my taste began to form when Lyndon Johnson was president. So there was a certain utility because some gatekeepers were really smart and cool and they could fit. And when, you know, when they latched onto something that was super cool, they could put a lot of corporate money behind it and really sell the hell out of it. Then you have an artist that sort of becomes like a unifying force. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking over recently, I'm working on a book now, my next book is going to be about REM. And one of the things I'm sort of puzzling through is back in the 90s, REM and U2 were the biggest rock and roll acts in the world. And they unified everybody you knew, knew who U2 and REM were, and probably owned at least one or more of their records. And they were ubiquitous. When a song like Losing My Religion became a huge hit in, in 1991, it was everywhere. You know, I don't think that happens nearly as much anymore. Or, you know, you go back even earlier than that and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, they get 70 million people watching them and the entire nation, it, you know, sort of pivots around this event. And there's something exciting and cool about that, that sort of unification factor that doesn't really happen much anymore because the media has not only fragmented, but into like a million billion pieces, which creates 
a lot of cool possibilities, but also it doesn't allow for the sort of grand unification of a culture, which, I mean, I grew up thinking was super cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a thing about like monolithic culture, which is, it feels really unifying, I think, especially if you identify with the monolith. I think that being white culture in particular is like a thing that we think of, you know, oh, yeah, there was a time when everyone knew losing my religion, but that was because white people were in charge of what monolithic culture is and was we, we continue to be especially like white male culture continues to be like the monolith when we think of like what the grand culture is we're like yeah it's like kind of by and for white guys hey and then... hey don't don't <laughs> knock the white men don't knock the old white men i, I always like constantly I, I know right <laughs> But on the other hand, I mean, look, there was a time, I mean, and I maybe still to this day, but back when hip hop really kind of became, you know, the preeminent thing, I mean, and MTV in particular, once they began to play African-American music, African-American music kind of took over the culture to a large degree. And you got like white kids from, from Indiana talking like black kids who grew up in the Bronx just because they were listening to that music. And on the one hand, I know the one argument is, oh, appropriation, and that's not good. On the other hand, you can also see that as sort of the triumph of African-American culture. It was like a long, hard, long fought battle well, to make that happen. Was. you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And there are many people who thought that that was a bad thing. There were a lot of people who, who did not like that Black culture became part of the monolith, which I think is cool and good. I think that one of the biggest things about the splintering of culture is it allows us to close ourselves off to other things, which I think for so long, it was like, you know, there were three TV channels and mm -hmm. that was what everybody was watching. And so it was like the gatekeepers, the gates were pretty high. The people in charge were all pretty similar and they got to make the decisions. And it yeah. was that way with music for a while. It was like, you know, in order to get on the radio, you had to be with these certain labels. You had to do X, Y, and Z. You had to jump through these hoops and these people had to let you in. And it is very cool that there were people who were looking for interesting and freaky people to like let them be developed as artists. I think that is very, very cool. I am so curious about what's going to happen next with album culture. I We did Dark Side of Oz the other night, which mm -hmm. I hadn't done in a very long time. Even like listening to Dark Side of the Moon, I'm like, this is wild. This is mu music to take drugs and listen to. That's what this music is meant for. It's meant to lay on your floor, on some sort of substance and like, let it wash over you. It is not meant for, you know, you can cut out some pieces and put it on the radio, but like mm -hmm. the fact that this was so the popular. The most popular albums of all time. It dominated Wild. the culture. Yeah. There is just moments of silence on it, you know? <laughs> like You know, I mean, that was what I grew up with. And I thought that that was really cool. And I liked the idea of extended artwork. And I loved the idea of album length, you know, symphonic isn't the right word, but the idea of an, but there were some albums, I mean, and some extended works like, you know, I mean, you talked about Dark Side of the Moon, but also like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or Pet Sounds, or, you know, there's so many records that kind of seem to come from a specific place and a specific perception. And there's something very cool about getting drawn into that. It's very absorbing and, and it's not just a couple minutes, you know, it's 40 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour. Take a record like the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street, which doesn't really have any major hit singles on it, 
but as a double album, it's all comes from a very specific sensibility in the set of musical and cultural references and a very, very distinctive perception of life and the world that's drawn from blues. And, you know, it's this weird amalgamation of gut bucket American blues and this weird jet set drug addicted lifestyle that the Stones were enjoying in the south of France in 1971. You know, but again, I'm an old guy, but I love that kind of stuff. And well, I, I mean, and, the last time that I can think of an album making me feel that way, where I was like, I need to actually just sit down and listen to this whole thing was the Kendrick Lamar album to Pimp a Butterfly that came out yeah. like three or four years ago. It's all of his albums, I think in general, tell a story, I think Good Kid, Mad City is also like a very amazing piece of art that is like its own thing, but you don't see that many concept albums coming out anymore. We right. have really gone so far from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I can feel <laughs> that Joe needs us to get back in it. And I think we well, should. We, I mean, your book obviously focuses on Warner Brothers with the central figure, Mo Austin, who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was inducted in 2003. And he, he was one of the, the rare inductees to have three people induct him. Who inducted him? All of ZZ Top. <laughs> <laughs> it was Lauren Michaels and Paul Simon together, like yeah. both at the podium, very loose, a very loose speech. And then Neil Young also gives a speech after them. And this is all the induction? Yeah, this is at his induction, yeah. Oh yeah, because there's no performance for him. Oh, well, actually, Paul Simon performed still crazy after all these years. Wow, for a record executive. I'm okay yeah. with this one. I think this guy sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's a testament also to his merits that so many people wanted to induct him. You know, when he left the company, sort of run out of the company for a variety of corporate sleazebag reasons. You know, they, they made this record called Moe's Song. It's like a basically a multi-disc overview of the music that had come out of the company in his era. And uh, George Harrison wrote and performed an original song called Moe. Which isn't bad when you can get an ex-Beatle to, to do a song about you. Yeah, like, you're probably doing something right. You know, I mean, he was super duper influential and, you know, and remains that way, really. Yeah, your book really clarified it for me because, you know, I'm familiar because I'm a weird Rock Hall obsessive. I know which kind of executive people have been inducted. And mm -hmm. usually it's someone who started a label. There's yeah. not a lot of people who just were executives or ran a label because usually it's people like Seymour Stein who founded Sire or Jack Holzman who founded Electra or Chris Blackwell who founded Island like there's it's always they or started the man of the two who founded Stax oh right yeah <laughs> yeah exactly Jim Stewart but not Estelle Axton not Estelle Axton gotta keep it you just gotta male. keep her out make sure she doesn't get in <laughs> and that usually is very it's a very clear image to me it's like okay yes of course they founded this thing and I, yeah. I didn't quite get what Mo Austin did, but you could make an argument that really his tenure at Warner Brothers is almost, I mean, it's certainly starting a new chapter. It almost feels like a new label mm -hmm. compared to the no rock and roll allowed decree, which is so funny and also so old because it's Jack Warner who was this old 
studio guy from like the old days of Hollywood who hated mm-hmm. rock and roll. And then also Frank Sinatra, which is a very it's Frank Sinatra It's so thing. funny too, to imagine people hating rock and roll. Like oh, it's, rock and roll, baby, not on my just, not on my label. I really do understand that anytime there is counterculture, people are like, ah, we hate it. But like, it is just so funny because we think of rock and roll now as this like old white guy thing. And for even older white guys, it's like, they were like, no, this is the devil's music. It's just very funny to imagine that through the lens of today. I think it's wonderful that everybody got into it and the kids were all right. Well, you know, it's like every new pop culture, every time, you know, every generation's music is in many ways a reaction to, and most often an absolute refutation and, and rejection of the previous generation. I mean, it's phenomenal and kind of weird and a little disturbing that like my kids who are teens and early 20s now, I mean, and not just because of me, not just because they lived with a you know, rock and roll obsessive who eventually began to focus his career on on writing about him. But, you know, they're friends too. They're kids. I mean, these kids are still listening to Led Zeppelin. I mean, I see these kids wandering around 45 years later wearing Led Zeppelin t-shirts from a tour that I saw when I was 14, you know? There's and access. There's just yeah. access to everything now for better and for worse. And right. it's very cool. Yeah. We talk about this on our show too, the the power of a logo, kind of like if a band has a cool logo and, and can be sold at Urban Outfitters, sure. the longevity of their career and the appeal of kids, because a kid might buy a Joy Division shirt at Urban Outfitters and then be like, I guess I should look into this band. But people dig Led Zeppelin because they dig Led Zeppelin music and they dig the attitude, you know, or the Stones or whatever, which is astounding to me because it's like when I was in high school, which was like mid late 1970s, that would be like me being into like super into Irving Berlin. (laughs) You know, it's like I'm walking around in an Irving Berlin white Christmas t-shirt. I mean, it is also cool because people now also want to know why they like what they like too. You know, you can research and get back into, because then you're to the people you're into are going to say, oh yeah, I really love David Bowie. And then you're going to check out David Bowie. You're going to get into it. You're going to learn about all of the glam rock from the seventies. It's just very cool. And that you don't have to like sneak into your older brother's bedroom to steal his record, you can just type it into your computer and then there it is. It's like you used to need an a cool older sibling or friend to like tell you what's up. Yeah. And now you can find anything. Or which is- like in my case, you would go to the literal Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and learn about artists that way because there wasn't a Wikipedia. And that was how I got like an entryway into music that I didn't know about and that was not from the era that I was currently in to have, you know, here's who's inducted and then that gets you started. That's like the primer that gets you going, okay, I need to see who this person is. I need to, this is where I can start. I used to be back in my day, I'd go to record stores. You know, when I I grew up in Seattle and in the university district on University Avenue and right around there, which runs just like a block off of the west side of campus there were like a dozen funky old, like funky, cool used record stores and that sold new, you know, new and used records. And you'd walk, you know, and they were like local businesses and they were staffed by lanky hippies and, and music obsessives. And you'd walk in there, you know, I'd, I'd go there like, you know, at least once a week or generally more than that. 
and flip through the records and see what was there and kind of try to work out like, well, who is, you know, who the heck is whomever, like Little Feet, say, for instance. It's like, <laughs> I've heard I've heard this, or you'd sit there and they'd be playing cool records over the, uh, the sound system and something would come on. And I remember there'd be, you know, dozens of times where I'd walk up to the guy behind the counter and say, who are we listening to? And then sometimes I would just buy that record. And the last time that happened to me, and it hadn't happened in years, was uh, probably 10 years ago or so. And I was in Music Millennium, which is a cool local record store in Portland here in my neighborhood. And uh, I started listening to this music that sounded like, like Van Morrison and Bob Dylan had made a you know, had made a record together that had never come out in the early 70s. And I went to the, because it, it just had this, this, this energy to it. And, and then it turned out that it was Rodriguez, that guy. Oh, who, oh the Sugar, Sugar Man, Searching yeah, exactly. Sugar Man, that guy. Yeah. And the reason, the reason I loved it was because it was, had been made when I was a kid, yeah. <laughs> but, it had, but I had never heard it. You know, right. it was, and I remember like a few months later when he actually came to Portland to play a show, I went to this concert and, uh, you know, at like a club, you know, like the thousand, twelve hundred, you know, pretty big concert venue, bar type of venue. And the place was full of these codgers who had all most many of whom had squeezed into their hippie denims from 40 years earlier. And all of us were there for the same reason, which was the thrill of seeing someone who seemed like a new artist to us, who was playing music that was new to us but was straight out of the era when we loved music the most. And it was sort of an interesting kind of collision between the old days and now, you know, and who, who we were 40 years ago and who we are now. And, and, and these people, I used to go to shows when I was like 12, 13 years old, when I started going to see shows in the mid seventies. And uh, there were always these cooler, older people, uh, who I sort of was trying to fit in with or, or not see, you know, and, and I was, again, the, the precocious, fresh-faced little kid who probably shouldn't have been up that late. And there we all were. I felt like, oh, here they all are, except now <laughs> they're all really old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm pretty old myself, but at least I'm not that old yet. But, uh, but it was a lot. It was interesting. It was like, oh, suddenly they, nobody wants to stand up that, that you know it's just, mm-hmm. they were all yeah. used to sitting for shows and it was like there were no seats and people were getting really pissy about that and there was an interesting collision between uh sort of like the way rock concerts actually run and and the and, realities of aging bodies exactly yes. we saw uh we saw elvis costello in a seated venue not too long ago and yeah. uh it was a bummer. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, you you mentioned Little Feet, and we're going to talk about Little Feet and specifically evaluate their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame potential. I have a list of categories that we go through to see mm-hmm. if uh, an artist has a shot or at least a case for induction. But before that, why don't we take a little bit of a break? And then when we come back, we'll be talking Little Feet. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, some people tried to get you to reveal your sources, but you You stayed strong, (laughs) stayed strong. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about Little Feet. Little Feet became eligible for the Rockmore Hall of Fame. This is something I actually could not fully figure out. Some say 1997. I might say 1996, because although their first album came out in 1971, I think in 1970, there was a single release for their song, Hamburger Midnight. Hamburger Midnight. 
was hard for me to verify that. So it's either 96 or 97. Peter, Little Feet is a Warner Brothers group, but that's kind of incidental, right? Mm -hmm. You you didn't pick them because of the book. Of course not. I mean, the fact that I love, I mean, I love Little Feet going back to when I was a teenager and, you know, which obviously was decades before I thought about writing a book about Warner Brothers records. And I would have, I would have been happy to have the same conversation and to make the same case, but it's just, it's symbolic of what a cool label Warner's is, that they spent a lot of time and money and energy and invested in a band like Little Feet who were weird and, and not terribly mainstream and the chances of their becoming super successful were pretty slim. So for our listeners who maybe don't know who Little Feet are, I guess I would describe them as like kind of a a rootsy, bluesy, almost like swamp rock, boogie rock band that is surprisingly not from the South. That's something I I did not realize because they definitely have a Southern feel to them. But, you know, the lead... Uh, singer and kind of frontman Lowell George is an LA kid. Yeah, and a rich LA kid. He was the son of a successful furrier. But the thing is, is that uh, they started out, uh, I mean, there's eras of little feet, even though they really were in their original incarnation, which is what I'm talking about. Most people sort of identify as core little feet went from, you know, I think their first record came out in 71. And then their last record came out in 79 which was the same year that Lowell George died. But they started out as, as, as a quartet of kind of L.A. weirdos, including two former members of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, one of whom was Lowell George and the other was the bassist Roy Estrada and a couple other sort of weird scenesters. The, the drummer Richie Hayward was in a band called Fraternity of Man who had a hit with Don't Bogart That Joint. Don't Bogart That Joint, my friend. Pass it over to me. It was on the Easy Rider soundtrack. And as a result, you know, and that was a big hit. So even though it wasn't like the single or whatever, mm-hmm. a lot of people knew that song. And, and I think for underground radio, which was pretty prevalent at the time, that was a band that you would know. You know, they all came out of this kind of West L.A. sort of music scene from which you got people, you know, everyone from like Jan and Dean and... Phil Spector and these late 50s, early 60s people. And then as, you know, the 60s went, you know, you had the Birds and Buffalo Springfield. And there was a scene there that was both, it it had a lot of commercial success, but it also had a lot of real interesting artistic people involved as well. And so the first sort of uh, success or, or whatever that they had was for Lowell George and Richie Hayward and a couple other people in their group. They were, they were in a band in the mid-60s called The Factory. And mm-hmm. their big moment of fame was appearing on the TV show F Troop. F Troop. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, I've seen the clip. It's very yeah, funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bizarre. And they play this music and the older soldiers, you know, even the soldiers don't like it and they sort of represent the older generation. And But Lowell George is like obviously the leader and he has a couple lines of dialogue. And But anyway, a few years pass and, you know, he spent some time in Zappa's band and eventually got kicked out of the mothers because either he wrote a song i mean because he was into drugs it's and, gotta, uh, that's gotta be it i've heard the other stories but like i yeah. feel like he was such a big pothead and zappa has kind of a zero tolerance policy about that 
Exactly, exactly. So he put together this band Little Feet in around 1969 or so, and the creative sort of hub of the band was Lowell George, who was mostly a guitar player and becoming quite a brilliant slide guitar player, very, very distinctive slide player, and a pianist named Bill Payne who was a classically trained, brilliant musician. And they put together this band and they, you know, their early sides, you know, the, the stuff that formed kind of the nucleus of their first album had a kind of very sort of rustic sort of, if you can think of like the band only grungier to a degree. That was what their first record sounded like. So they came in, you know, they sort of woodshedded for a while and wrote some tunes and stuff. And, uh, and they decided to come and audition for Warner Brothers. And they came into just Bill Payne and Lowell George came into Lenny Warnker's office and uh, played a bunch of the songs that they had written, just the two of them. And Lenny was immediately so impressed. He said, great, just go upstairs and sign a deal. So in other words, he sent them, he just immediately signed them on the spot, just based on the compositions and sent them upstairs and they, whatever, they negotiated a deal with Mo Austin and boom, they were, in the company and their first record was self-titled record. It's got a bunch of really cool songs on it, but it again, it had this very rustic kind of grungy sound. And very Southern sound. I mean, it's just, yeah. they sing that, with a twang. That kind of know? developed a little bit later. I think as, as they moved on, they kind of embraced that a little bit more. Uh, but why don't we kind of continue to tell their story as we go through? The categories. The categories. And okay. the the first category is iconic slash recognizable songs. Now, with Little Feet, I think it is true that they don't really have a ton of songs that, like, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. I think if there is one song, I think it's probably Dixie Chicken. Dixie Chicken, for sure. Dixie Chicken and probably Willen. I mean, Willen was covered by Linda Ronstadt, among other people. And if you give me weed, white sand, wine, and you show me a sign, I'll be willing. Yeah, Willen, although I had not heard of that song, uh, it is considered by some people to almost be like a, a standard. Like it's covered yeah. quite a bit. It's like a country song. It's like yeah, one that's the- what I mean. They sound very southern. I mean, Dixie Chicken is a very uh, southern song. Oh, yeah, to in, begin in with. name like, and sound. Yeah, it, it references New Orleans and stuff. But yeah. it's like they were sort of like an er alt country band. You know, sort of a little bit part of what was then called cosmic country. That like Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers and this sort of sudden revelation that country music could be cool. You know, and there was a lot of cool stuff. And Mm -hmm. and to an extent, they sort of came out of that. But they had more of a kind of bluesy edge, which was really emphasized when, you know, the more that Lowell George began to play slide guitar and created this extremely distinctive style that someone has, you know, famously compared to the sound a truck makes after it's lost its brakes and it's screaming down a mountain road, you know, completely out of control. Back when, you know, album-oriented rock was like the major sort of FM thing, they got a lot of airplay with a song called Oh Atlanta. Oh, 
that sort of you know name checks the South, and it sounds like they must be a Southern band. But I think, but Billy Payne grew up in Ventura, California, or thereabouts. You know, <laughs> right? But Got a lot traveled. of Southern posers out here. <laughs> the thing is, is that for their third record, which was Dixie Chicken. Uh, Roy Estrada, the original bassist, left, and they got in a new bassist and another guy and and a guitar player named Paul Beret, who came from New Orleans. And so their uh, bassist, Kenny Gradney, and conga player named Sam Clayton were African-American. And then you got this New Orleans guitar player, Paul Beret. And so their music kind of evolved from this sort of rough-hewn, sort of bluesy, alt-country sound to you know what you might call a bula base of influences <laughs> you know a jambalaya a jambalaya it. as it were let's talk about the next category which we're already kind of getting into which is classic albums does little yeah. have any albums that are widely considered to be classic oh I, yeah i i think if there is any from my kind of as an outsider perspective, as someone who's not necessarily a big fan, uh, Dixie Chicken to some, Feats Don't Fail Me Now, which is the record that came after that. But then the big one that I would say, you know, it's their, their only platinum selling album was their live album, Waiting for Columbus. Right, which some people believe is the greatest uh, live album ever made. They're definitely one of those bands where their fans will say like, well, you don't really get them unless you saw them live. The, the live experience is the way to experience this band. And there, there's a few groups that are, are like that. While we are in the album category, I would be remiss if I did not talk about the fact that many of their album covers are anthropomorphized sexy food or, or animals <laughs> uh, or animals yeah. Yeah. Uh, like a, kind of it's a pretty fun aesthetic there's a sliced cake kicking off her shoes on a swing yeah. there's a sexy tomato woman in a hammock there's a, there's a duck there's a hot, there's a duck with just a very rockin' bod and some <laughs> big old lips on the end of her bill. Uh -huh. I mean, it is a real, it's an aesthetic. And honestly, I love it. I think it's fun. I think it's poppy. <laughs> I think it's really cool. They, they had a very sort of unified aesthetic for visual aesthetic for their albums because this artist named Neon Park was essentially kind of a member of the band in the sense that they always turn to him to to create their album covers. To to connect this classic albums category to the next category, critical acclaim, do you guys think any of their albums are on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums list? All three versions, 2003, 2012, 2020. Are those the, the years? Yeah, Did I do it you, right? I can't believe you got it right. But <laughs> I yes, can't that believe is, I did Those either. are the versions. Okay. If there is, I bet Waiting for Columbus would be it. But on the other hand, Dixie Chicken could be on there too. For me, I do not think there is one currently in 2020. I don't think that, that it's on the list at all. I think if it would have been on the list ever, it probably would have been on the 2003 one and it might've dropped off by the 2012 one. I'm not sure. If it was, I think it would have been... I think it would have been waiting for Columbus, but I actually think it's probably, there's probably never been one on, on it. So your official vote is, is no? Uh-huh. Okay, so Little Feet has zero albums on Rolling Stone's 500 list. Okay. See, that's bizarre. You know, the thing about those lists, and, and, and I say this as somebody who knows people who work at Rolling Stone and likes them quite a bit and admires them quite a bit and everything, but it's like, those things are so, I, I just can't, that stuff 
I know, but the thing is, here we are talking about it, right? Which is why they do it. Yeah, and of course. It's, and it's, and it's, it's, it's and an it's, attempt to, and you know, you can make your arguments about this, but like if you want some sort of critical consensus or like how yeah. do you be objective about what the classic albums are, it's going to be flawed, but like this is as good as any attempt to figure that out. I would have guessed that something like Waiting for Columbus would have shown up at like number 467 or something. Yeah, like if barely only, on the list. Yeah, barely on the list, but like in that whole thing of just, but just because there'd be enough guys like me who would go, oh, well, we got to get a little feet record on here, you know, yeah. but on the other hand, it's what those records really are. I mean, or what those lists really are, are just kind of an index of, of, of how people view rock history now or what they want to mm -hmm. think about how they want to feel about themselves or, or as purveyors of popular music you know yeah uh, and so it's like sergeant pepper came out when i was four and as as an as an album it was transformative and and i knew that and the whole time till i would till recently i mean people if you made a list of the t the best albums ever made sergeant pepper was going to be number one it was until i mean they did a massive rehaul and re rethinking of it where it was not on 2020 but the other iterations yeah it was yeah yeah You're yeah right. that's the jets the is kind it of number agreed two upon. now no i forget where it went to no no, no no it fell it, number one was uh what's this going on around was what's going on and mm -hmm. i think number two was, was pet, pet sounds, sounds which has always been number two <laughs> That's yeah. one thing we can all agree on. Pet Sounds yeah. is always number two. Pet Sounds stays second. But the idea that Sergeant Pepper fell to like number 12 or 17 or something, I mean, it's absurd because what people don't understand about Sergeant Pepper was that it changed everything about mm -hmm. popular music. Yeah, and in, in a, a way that you cannot really understand, I think, right. unless you were there. Because stuff that you can do on your laptop in your bedroom they had to invent as a way to, you know, in ways where it's like you take a tape loop and you run it through the entire control room and you need seven guys to stand there with pencils to feed it around mm -hmm. to create this specific type of sound. I mean, the moment when the chicken turns into a guitar on Good Morning, you know, it's like people for years were like, oh my God, how did you even do that? Uh -huh. And now it's like, you're not quite technically proficient. 13 year old could do it before dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the next category is critical acclaim. And, you know, the, the list that we bring up to try and take a gauge of how the critics feel. Although I do believe even though Little Feet isn't on the list, Waiting for Columbus does make it on any list of the greatest live albums. When Rolling Stone did that, it made it on there. But I do think Little Feet was a pretty well-received band critically. Oh my God, they were enormously well-received. I mean, they were a band that was in some ways engineered for critics for a variety of reasons because they were serious musicians and they were really smart. And so they wrote, and Lowell George was, you know, this incredibly smart guy who wrote these songs that were incredibly clever, that were musically brilliant, but also lyrically complex and interesting. And just his use of language, you know, I mean, when he was really on the ball before he began to lose it to drugs and alcohol, he was the producer and the, and the, and the central songwriter and the lead singer and all this stuff and lead guitar player and everything. And, and, and he would write these songs. I mean, and, and the vocabulary that he used, I mean, he used to talk about his songs and sort of 
the little feet vibe as coming from, as he called it, the comic book consciousness. Uh, there's one song called Down Below the Borderline, I think, which is off of, of the last record album. And the, the verse goes, On a lot of poetry, symmetry in motion, they had about that girl across the ocean. So it's like, if you're a rock and roll writer and a critic, you know, you were probably an English major and you went to college or whatever, and that speaks to you because it's such a clever, I mean, first of all, onomata poetry you got a, like a seven syllable word in in a mm -hmm. song yeah and you 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 take that and you you put it into a verse that ends with like uh, you know talking about how hot a girl is so you have this kind of contrast plus also it's it's playing out over this music that is both incredibly funky but also somehow country and blues and funk and New Orleans and all these things melded together into this new kind of organic strain of something that's incredibly well played. And critics loved them right out of the box. I mean, they were one of those bands, you know, and that's another reason why Warner's had them, you know, because the people who ran Warner's had the same taste as rock and roll critics because they liked sophisticated artists who made sophisticated music. Well, and the like highbrow, lowbrow of it all, trying to weave a metaphor about a hot girl. Yeah, you're like elevating a, a pretty basic thing. Yeah, uh, well, we talk about critical acclaim and then on kind of the opposite side of the coin is commercial success. I, th I feel like they kind of exist in the middle because while they were not a huge success and to some degree, like my impression of Little Feet has always been, and I've heard this description before, that they are the best group that never made it or they're the most underrated band of well, all time. Like, yeah, obviously they had a, a number of records that went gold and the live album went platinum, but still they, they didn't quite hit that level of commercial success that a lot of their peers did at that time. Yeah, sure. But I mean, the thing is, there's when you want to talk about a band that never made it, it's like that's like the Velvet Underground. You know, they're playing. If you listen to old Velvet Underground tapes, you know, like live mm -hmm. shows, you can hear individual people applauding. Right. You hear individual <laughs> claps at the end of the songs. You know, they're playing tiny clubs. For sure. Whereas Although I don't I feel like they Velvet Underground, though, got their due. Yeah. eventually yeah but that was you know the cliche which is in many ways which is true enough is that like the velvet underground hardly had any fans but they all formed rock and roll bands, right. yes, yes, you yes. know and so it but with little feet they sort of worked their way up through the clubs and then there was a turning point in early 1975 and what that turning point was was they became part of a warner brothers records package tour in europe called the warner brothers music show and it was them, the Doobie Brothers, a band called Montrose, Graham Central Station. And they all went and toured. And basically what it was, was like a promotional thing for all these bands that were on the label. And they played all these different shows around England and Europe. And Little Feet, you know, the Doobie Brothers were, kind of, were the most popular of them all. And they were supposed to be the headliners. But Little Feet, they got there and they just blew them off the stage because they were at the height of their powers as a performance band. And they got a big lift because they had really famous fans in England. And one of them in particular was Robert Plant. And then Led Zeppelin was at its absolute peak. And Robert mm -hmm. Plant could not stop talking about how much he loved Little Feet. 
And then suddenly you had Mick Jagger and Keith Richards going to the shows and the Stones were royalty at that point. These, these crowds in England and Europe were just primed to give these guys a shot and they would come out on stage and deliver. And suddenly they began to sell a lot of records in England. It seems to me in some ways that it's kind of like a you had to be there type of situation with Little Feet. It's like at the time, things were really like cooking for them and coming together and stuff, but that hasn't necessarily translated into them still being in the conversation now. Like, especially when you bring up like the Doobie Brothers who got in last year. I mean, I keep putting it in the term of like, we're sweeping out the 70s. We're scraping out the 70s. With, the as far as picks like, have been obviously inducted. Like, and then you the go Zeppelins to- Zeppelins are in- the Stones are in, the Bowies are in. Now we're just like getting to the second and third tier, some might say, of the 70s artists who will or could get in. I feel like the Little Feet thing, it was this moment in time. And I know that probably the next thing we're going to talk about actually is longevity. Longevity, yeah. And we, so we can we, just I mean, move we can, into that. Yeah, we yeah. can absolutely go to the next category, longevity, which, you know, there, like you had mentioned, there are several iterations of this band, but really the true little feat is the Lowell George era. Yeah, and the longevity thing sort of took a hit when he died of a drug-related causes in, in 1979. Right, so they so, were for pretty much the entirety of the 70s, 71 to 79. So, you know, that's, that is a decent run, about eight years. You know, but then, it, like you said, it, it was cut short, although he had left the band to try and focus on some solo work before. Well, yes and no. I mean, right. he, it was, you know, they were constantly breaking up and coming back together again. I mean, that it was 19- the 70s. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and also they were, there was at least three members of the band who were ripped to the gills on various substances. And Lowell was probably the most ripped and the most troubled, which is a shame because he was also, and I don't even know if anyone in the band would argue this, the most brilliant and kind of mm-hmm. the sort of creative core, you know, the kind of the creative heart of the band in the original era. But even when he went out on that solo tour in 1979, he put out a, a really cool solo record called Thanks, I'll Eat It Here. We had another great Neon Park painting on the cover. That's yeah. a great name for an album, too. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, they were one of these bands that like, you know, critic, they were like a band that if you were smart and sophisticated and into rock and roll, you probably like Little Feet. It's like I discovered them when I was about 17. Like I literally started getting into them in the spring of 79. And then literally within six weeks, Lowell George died. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, you know, I'd heard them on the radio there in 78 when Waiting for Columbus came out. But it was, it was actually, I got into them through his solo record. Uh, if well, Little Feet, you know, what the, the reason why Little Feet would deserve to get in is the amount of influence they had on a whoa, bunch of other. Oh, my God. Oh, here, here we go. Literally I, I, the next category. I can category. smell another category coming. Next category uh, is indeed influence. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the thing is, you like who, you know, the, I, we were talking a minute ago, like, who were their fans? Well, you know, Robert Plant. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, uh, Robert Palmer, you know, they actually played on, you know, Robert Palmer, the sing- and I don't even know if people remember Robert Palmer. But sure. I mean, now they'll, they'll remember Addicted to Love. Addicted and- to yeah. Love and all yeah, of yeah, those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 10 years before that, you know, he was coming up and he was kind of a funky white boy, sort of blue eyed soul singer from England. 
And, you know, I think Lowell, I don't, I can't remember if Lowell George produced his record or not, but Little Feet was his band on at least one of his records. And mm-hmm. Robert Palmer was a super duper huge Little Feet fan. And, yeah. um, you now know, we- and also, so it was like them, uh, also like Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt, uh, you know, they had a whole lot of really cool musicians who were sort of part of their circle. Now, you mentioned, you know, their friends and collaborators, but do you feel like those artists were influenced musically, like that you could hear the Little Feet influence in their music? Definitely Bonnie Raitt in terms of her slide playing. The slide and, guitar, yeah. And that stuff, you know, I mean, she was, I mean, obviously she's a great guitarist herself, but, uh, you know, and a great singer. People talk about Lowell, you know, one of the things about Lowell George is that he was a fantastic singer. He had a very strong voice with an incredibly big range. It was very clear and he could really get up there. And he had, he was one of these white guys that could sing kind of the blues scale just effortlessly and without embarrassment in a way that like a lot of white guys who want to sing the blues can't do. Now, in, in terms of groups that kind of came after them that were directly influenced by them, to me, it's kind of hard to place just because I feel like if there are groups who are influenced by Little Feet, you could also maybe draw that line to groups like The Band or Leonard Skinner or The Allman Brothers. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of if there's anybody who feels like Little Feet was, without Little Feet, they would not exist. You know, I think that they were sort of a band that I think their influence is less directly sonic mm-hmm. and more in a kind of just a, the way that they amalgamated so much, so many different types of music into one thing. Maybe, uh, maybe in terms of like the live, like almost like jam band. Yeah. Did they jam? That was yeah. going to be my next question was, did no, they jam? Because if they, they jammed, then we've got, then we, now if they jammed. <laughs> We've got we've got a legacy but I, out I, here. I, that, that's something that I, I think there's there's some truth there. The jam band type of groups would be the ones who would probably declare themselves, you know, descendants of Little Feet. They could definitely play their asses off. And Lowell and Billy Payne and Paul Bure were all great soloists and stuff. But they didn't jam in the way like the Grateful Dead did or like Fish mm-hmm. or whatever, where they just meander from one song to the next. But there are some songs. Whoa, whoa, that they... whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on a second. Kidding. They're like more like a, a groove, like a. Like, for instance, on the live record, there's a great kind of mashup of Dixie Chicken and a song called uh, Trike Face Boogie, where there's a long instrumental passage that kind of melds them together. And they, another record, they did that with Cold, Cold, Cold and Trike Face Boogie. definitely ride a groove for a really long time but if you listen to their live shows and tapes and stuff they it wasn't like the dead or whatever where there's a lot of jamming they were tighter and more sort of song centric than the dead or or other jammy bands Mm -hmm. but i think that if you talk to guys probably i would i would imagine that like a guy like dave matthews is probably a yeah, a, I believe he a is. Little Feet fan. Oh, and, I believe um, that, yeah. You know, and guys like the, you know, the what's his name, the guitar player, John uh Christ, he plays with the dead now. I mean, John Mayer? 
yeah, John Mayer. Like I, I would, I would imagine that yeah, he probably. I bet is, you're right. And like fan. fucking Warren Haynes and like all those guys. All those guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Those the people who are sort of part of that Almond Brothers sort of circle. Circle family. Are the Almond Brothers in? Oh yeah, they're the Fye okay. baby. I would have thought that they would be in, and yet you know, uh, you you never know. <laughs> yeah. So the the next category we're already kind of talking about it is artistry slash skill. You know, Lowell George, not just a great singer, but a great songwriter and kind of complete artist. And all these guys really were very skilled musicians. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were fantastic. You know, and also, you know, Bill Payne wrote good songs and Paul Beret wrote some great songs and stuff. And so it's like they were sort of a triple threat in that way. For me, at least, you know, my favorites, generally my favorite songs are are the the Lowell George songs. Yeah, Uh, I think that's probably the general consensus. You know, yeah. that's he yeah. is to many people little feet, not to diminish the contributions of the others, but you know, he's yeah. The guy. And they had a really great rhythm section and a really diverse set of influences that they and they could play in a whole wide array of styles and do them well. And uh, the people who are like the great musicians and rock and roll, certainly of that era, were huge little feet fans. Mm-hmm. You know, the, their fans, it was like a galaxy. I mean, tons of people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame love Little Feet. Let's put it that way. Yeah. All right. The last category, maybe the most important category, does my mom know who they are? <laughs> and I asked her and she said, yes, she does. Although, to be fair, my mom is definitely of the era where, you know, she was a young person at their height, you know, so, uh-huh. uh, but she, but she did. If we take this category and change it a little bit, does my girlfriend know who they are? No, she does not. So in, in terms of cultural ubiquity, and it's kind of like what you were saying, Kristen, like yeah. you, you kind of had to be there. I mean, obviously you're, you've already, your mom has come up already. Yeah. My mom, obviously I don't even have to text her. She knows little feet. She loves little feet. They, she is the reason that I know who they are. I would not have known who they are if it yeah. wasn't through her for for my mother continuing to have their CDs in our house when I was a child, right? And also still continuing to go see them in the, like the '90s and 2000s. She would go see them if they were in town. Mm-hmm. She would. My mom was trying to be there. My mom loves a funky. <laughs> she loves a funky rock song. She likes it to be bluesy. <laughs> Well, then that's her band, you know? Oh, I mean? yeah. That's, she, yeah. they're like right up there. I mean, all the bands that have been referenced today are very much in my mother's catalog, wheelhouse on her favorite radio mm-hmm. stations. And if there was a Sirius XM for Little Feet, like a Little Feet station <laughs> and playing all their, you know, influences that's and like contemporaries, she'd be putting it at number one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing I got drawn to them again in 1979, just because. I loved the songs because they were so smart. You know, I was, you know, as a teenager, I was trying, you know, I'm trying to figure out like what my aesthetic is. You know, I knew I loved the Beatles. Since I loved them since I was, a, you know, a toddler. And then I got into the, Be- the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson when I was, a, you know, at the beginning of my adolescence. And then Bruce Springsteen when I was 15. And, and these are bands that I still love to this day. But then, you know, you cast around a little bit, you know, and I went through a period of trying to like, Ted Nugent or that kind of music, or I got the Van Halen record. It's like, I couldn't, 
I couldn't handle Pink Floyd for whatever reason I tried. You know, you sort of cycle through, like, am I this type of a guy? Am I that type of a guy? And then when I found Little Feet, they were obviously cool. Like the cool people liked Little Feet. So that was engaging to me. But it was also just that their songs were really smart. Like you could tell that there was a real literary influence there. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're kind of like the the cool music snob kind of like pick. They're edgy, they're funky, they're fun. But then, you know, Mm -hmm. if you look a little deeper, there's some depth in there as well. So they've kind of got it all for a guy like you and for many people who also went on to be rock critics, you know, which is like. Uh, a sizable portion of the voting body and nominating body for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But is it enough? Well, why don't we? Uh, why don't we give our verdict? See that I am seamlessly transitioning. transitioning. I'm like crushing it. I'm doing great. I think it's a microphone. Uh, um, it must be. <laughs> thanks, AKG. <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's do our verdict. Should Little Feet be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Will they get in? And if so, when? And we'll start with Kristen. Something that has been coming to my mind several times during this episode has been thinking of the Paul Butterfield blues band, a band that I know about because of a rock hall thing that I didn't, I was like, who the hell are these guys? Why would you put them in? Who cares? then we watched the package and I was like, these guys kick ass. This is one of, I'm so glad that I know about them. I'm glad they're in. I feel like little feet might kind of fall into that category of type of notoriety they're not as well known even as the doobie brothers who i consider to be the bottom of the 70s barrel as i have said previously and so i'm like very much struggling with whether or not i think that there's like room for little feet in the hall you know me i think there's room for everybody i literally am like put whoever in i don't care but at the same time i have a a hesitancy toward putting every band from the 70s in I like that there is some diversity in their members. Are any of the black members still alive? Yeah. Both of them are. Yeah. Both are. Yeah. All right. I'm liking that more. <laughs> um, I just am like so sick of these predominantly white and male classes being inducted. And I think we're kind of getting to the end of that era. And so do I think that we need to keep getting at it? I don't know. And so I'm really, I, it's like with a heavy heart and as Jackie Keenan's daughter, it is with a heavy heart that I think, I I don't think that they should be in. I'm looking at the categories and I'm glad I know about them. I'm glad we did this episode. I am going to go and get into their music more. I wouldn't be angry if they got in. Mm, I might be if like other people that I really want in didn't get in. Like, right. do I want the Go-Go's in more than I want Little Feet? Yes, I really do. And so that's what I'm basing my verdict on. And then even if they were to get on the ballot, they might get in if they got on the ballot. Okay. I don't know what I'm saying. Boy, oh boy. No, I, I get it. It's, I, it's you're, a you're hard and terrible sense. place to be. I hate I saying that I don't think people should and will get in. Like, especially when an impassioned case has been made. Yeah. But I But I the, the, our, but, our job on this show is try to be objective. But my job is a, a journalist <laughs> and objective. I am an incredibly subjective and not journalist person. But that is, I think that's how I feel. Okay. Peter, what do you think? Should they, will they, and, and if so, when? Yeah, I think they should. I mean, um, I mean, to me, the whole, like, what the criteria are or, or what the criteria should be, it's like, 
they make really cool music? Did they move the ball musically? Did they kind of change the boundaries of popular music? And I think that in their way, Little Feet sort of did, you know? And also I sort of feel like, did they have a, you know, catalog? Like how, you know, were they around for more than just like a record or two? And did they evolve, you know, did they grow during their time as a, as, you know, as a band? And I think definitely they did. I, yeah, I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, obviously I think that they should, will they? I don't know. You know, I think that they, you know, they're running against a, a few different strong currents. And one is that they never sold a lot of records. And two is in a time where, you know, even the quasi gatekeepers are focusing on, diversity as well they should you know again like you said you know a band that's kind of dominated by white guys you know it's not the thing where they're going to turn around and go oh my god you know like we definitely need to have little feet and so when it's hard to say you know in a weird way you know a lot of it sort of depends on how new music evolves i mean what'll happen is if you get a bunch of new musicians who get popular and a style evolves that that gets some traction and these people feel a connection to little feet, then it'll change. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. It's like we often say too, like if a documentary comes out about somebody yeah. or if there's like a, you know, a, a fictionalized movie, oh, yeah. if they had Spe- some sort of, of great which, story. Speaking of which, Whoa. I mean, I, I won't say the name of it, but there is a documentary about Lowell George on Amazon Prime. And it's gotta be one of the worst documentaries I've ever seen. Oh yeah, I think I saw that. I think I saw that. Ooh, it's like, and like, I am no documentary editor, but I could definitely, I could cut this thing up and make it better. And also it's two hours. I could make it an hour and a half easy. Part of the problem, if I'm not mistaken, is that they didn't, they couldn't clear the music. And so at least the background music was something else, something that sounded, it was clear (laughs) that they got up, you know, some musicians together and say, Hey, could you guys make us like 40 minutes of music that sounds like little feet oh, but isn't yeah. little feet. oh my god well the, the one i watched and it maybe was that maybe i was tricked because they had some live footage that they were allowed to to show yeah. but the every talking head you know we know at this point documentary rhythm right you go to a yeah. talking head and they go little feet they're just one of the best most influential bands of all time i mean they're iconic then you move right. on to the next one and they would cut to these talking heads they'd be like little feet they're like the best one of the most influential <laughs> iconic bands of all time I mean, I just like, I really, I really like them. They're, I mean, did they, Little Feet, I mean, Little Feet, Little Feet was, uh, yeah, I can't remember the first oh time God. I saw them. And you're like, fucking cut away from this guy. We get it. Right. And it's like every, every cut was like that. There's a lot of stock footage of just going over Los Angeles, like a lot of stock footage of like the needle on a soundboard. Anyway, I like Little Feet and I've grown to enjoy their music more, not even from just researching this episode, but from talking to you, Peter, Mm -hmm. you made a very strong case. And I think there will be a lot of Little Feet fans who tune into this episode. They have a very strong and passionate fan base. Rolling Mm -hmm. Stone actually did a reader's poll a few years back of who people wanted to see in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in like 2017. And Pearl Jam was number one, obviously. Nobody's more passionate of a fan base than Pearl Jam. But Little Feet was number two. They were right there. Really? uh, Up there. Because, you know, they have a fan base and they're really into that group. So I know people will listen to this who really love Little Feet. That being said, I do think they fall just a little bit short for me in terms of 
having a case for rock hall induction. And the thing is, and we bring this up every once in a while, you can be a really, really great band that makes really great music. And that doesn't necessarily mean you get into the rock and roll hall of fame. They're just a little bit short on cultural ubiquity. They weren't quite big enough to overcome that. They don't have that many songs that everybody knows. I think they're really great. I would not be disappointed or upset if they were inducted. I think that could be very cool. And I think that would expose them to a lot of new people. Uh, that being said, if they, I do think if they got on the ballot, they maybe would have a good shot because a lot of musicians, especially like, if we had swept out the seventies, if yeah. we, <laughs> if we had like, because there aren't that many bands left from that era to be yeah. on the ballot. So mm -hmm. if they did, they would just take that category. Yeah, it's like that lane would be wide open and yeah. everybody from the Doobie Brothers would be voting for them. Right. You know? And if I had to guess, I don't think it will happen, but if it did, it would it would probably be maybe 10 years from now. But also maybe once we get to 10 years from now, we have fully bygone that era. So yeah. I don't know. It's uh, I, I would guess probably not happening, but if it did, it would be cool. Now let's move beyond all that. Let's say Little Feet is getting inducted in the Rock and Hall of Fame. Hooray, I think you only induct the people from the classic era, from the Lowell George era. You induct Lowell George, Bill Payne, Richie Hayward, Paul Beret, Kenny Gadney, Sam Clayton. The original bass player, Roy Estrada, was on the first two albums. He's a founding member. You could induct him, but also he is in jail for child molestation. Don't know that you would necessarily I'm gonna, want to fight gonna for him. I'm going to say no. For me, that's, it's a no. That's problematic for real. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, he was, I mean, it's that thing of like, he was a founding member. He was on the first few. Blah, blah, blah. We, I don't think it would be worth fighting for him. Who inducts them? Who gives the speech to induct Little Feet into the Rock Hall? Mm, I could see Bonnie Raitt, but is she a big enough foot to, to do that? You know, I mean, is she, she loves. She's not Little Feet, but she is Big Feet. Right, exactly. I mean, is she does she have enough gravitas? I think she that, is beloved by the Rock Hall, and she's yeah. inducted people before, and like yeah, and yeah. by Jackie, my mother. <laughs> yeah. Very, very much so. Well, she's, I mean, she's, she's like rock royalty. Okay, yeah. well then it would probably be somebody like Bonnie Ray. You know, it could be somebody like Jackson Brown was part of their circle too. Mm -hmm. and another he, Rock Hall guy. Yeah, another, he is very beloved by them as well. Right, and and he co-wrote at least one song with Lowell George and was hugely influenced by Lowell George. We forgot about him when we talked about the influences, but yeah. he's definitely definitely part of that scene. Yeah, um, and, and then if you if you went newer, more current, I think you would probably have to go with like a country artists because i think those are probably the newer artists that love little feet and i know he's not necessarily new but like someone like vince gill is yeah a, a big little feet guy and dave matthews same thing but again you know i mean it's like what what exactly are the you know the the, the nominating crowd or whatever at, at the rock hall you know what are they trying to do what are they trying to say i mean there's a lot of horse trading that goes along with who gets in, you know, it's like, well, so-and-so is part of the committee and, and he's been their manager for 50 years. It's like, yeah, but, I mean, uh, there's, there's, yeah, that kind of thing definitely can tip the scales. What songs, usually they get three or four songs at the ceremony. What songs should they, or would they play? They'd probably play Willen. They'd play Dixie Chicken. Mm -hmm. They would play Oh Atlanta. Oh, Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, and then the fourth song would probably be um, maybe it would be one of the ones that they did after Lowell George, just because they're there and he's not. Yeah, they uh, cut that from the broadcast. 
maybe so. <laughs> but then the person who would probably, the band, uh, Bonnie Raitt would definitely be a part of it. It could be that Jackson Brown would sing like one of the, well, it depend on which one they would do. Maybe if there was an African-American artist, maybe like Hootie. <laughs> <laughs> Gary well, if Trucker. It's, if it's a rock call, it'd be Gary Clark Jr. It would be Gary Clark Jr. That's, he put, right. and he's bring a, him in. He's a Warner Brothers artist and Lenny Warnker is his producer. Well, there it I was. Mean, that might be the choice. The, the, certainly the yeah. Hall Hall loves Gary. Yeah, well, here's a question. And this is assuming pandemic is over and everything is normal. If Little Feet got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, would you go to the ceremony? Who's paying for my ticket? I would go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony under any circumstances. If, you know, I mean, except I'm not sure I could swing the 10 G's a ticket. Thing, oh, I mean, but, you oh, could- Oh, no, we got- Sit with us. It's like fifty tickets. bucks. Come, tickets. come hang out with oh, us. Oh, 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 I keep forgetting it's not at the uh, Waldorf. Waldorf, yeah. Anymore, it's open to the but, public. You know, I don't know. Would I go? I mean, yeah, of course I would You'd go. You'd go, I mean, then you go do some research out. in the basement at the. Look if it. it was in Cleveland, you go hang out at the actual museum. Just yeah, you know. I spent quantity time in Cleveland because I go for the last few books I've done. I've spent like a week there doing research in the in the archives. Yeah. See, yeah. and now you could spend a week there in all of Cleveland's hottest clubs. <laughs> There's they, a lot of good rock and roll clubs. Yeah. In Cle- I mean, Cleveland's a great rock town, always has been, rock and soul town. Well, hey, listen, if you go to the induction ceremony, we will almost certainly be there. That'll, right. that'll be a fun time for, for us. Peter, thank you so much for doing the show. My I pleasure. Sonic Boom is coming out, uh, I think, within a week of when this drops, but I want to give you the opportunity to plug that book. And if you want to plug your social media or, or whatever, have at it. Well, uh, the book comes out on January 19th, though, of course, you can pre-order it at any time or post-order it at any time. Um, <laughs> a great book. I, I read it and I, it was I thank you. a few days. It was a really great read. Uh, you can find me at my website, which is peteramescarlin.com. Or, and I'm, of course, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and the Instagram under Peter Ames Carlin, which is just one long word. And, uh, great. you know, I'm just... I'm just, I'm just out there, man. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Great. Well, well, thank you again for being on the show. This book is Sonic Boom by Peter Ames Carlin. You, of course, can follow us at RockHallPod on Twitter and Instagram. RockHallPod at gmail.com is the email. If you want Kristen to see the message, you're going to need to designate that somewhere. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us. Five stars only, even if you are disappointed by our little feet uh, verdict. Oh my gosh, uh, yeah. I don't want nice. the big little feet out here coming coming for our ratings. And I thought I thought we were we were very nice overall. And also, do it for for Peter. He, he advocated very very nicely. Uh, thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Yusuke Kim for the music. Thank you to Pantheon Podcast for hosting us. And thank you to AKG for the microphone. I'm Joe Kozala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares about the Rock Hall? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.